are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Desha. Today, we have Tom Sucker and Matthew Alford, the producers of the film Theaters of the War, where they will come and talk to us about the intense relationship between Hollywood and the national security state. Today we have Matthew Alford and Tom Sucker. They wrote, a f- they've written some books about this topic and they're featured, they're producers and featured in a documentary that is going to be released in March. Did I get it that right? I think so. Okay. So the first question for both of you is most people go to the movies and they don't really like, let's say you're watching Iron Man or a Marvel comic. They don't realize that it has a lot of um, input from the Department of Defense. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, Hello, Tom. Nice uh, Nice to see you again. Yeah, yeah. Hey, man. Do you want to take that one? (laughs) Uh, Well, a lot of people don't realise that the um, Department of Defence and CIA and various other agencies, often quite controversial agencies, are involved in the production of cinema. And um, particularly over the last uh, 15 years or so, uh, over the production of network television as well. Um, It's a a really striking phenomenon that we have uncovered uh, as a small group of researchers over the last few years. And yeah, it's it's we think it's really disturbing. Um, it it seems kind of strange. I think you know when we were first starting to look at this, you know, sort of fifteen or twenty years ago, the idea that there could be you know kind of this sort of level of state control over television just seemed peculiar. I mean, we we always knew that there were you know occasionally the government gets involved in the production of films. You know that has happened patchily in the past in the twentieth century. But actually, that that had been going on way, way, way more than than we ever, than anyone ever realised, um, and it was kept secret largely by a, a small group of academics and people in the U.S. military and CIA, um, as well as just the usual commercial interests not really wanting to advertise when they are essentially manipulating a load of narratives for the consumption of the of the poor public. Uh, yeah, I've always kind of had that idea because we never see like movies about, let's say, the El Mozote massacre, but we see plenty of um, Black Hawk Down and all those kind of like stuff. Um, okay, so um, Tom, you tried to do a freedom of information request in regards to whether or not that they have a database of these movies. And do, do you want to talk about what happened there? Okay, sure. So I guess the background to this is that Matt had been in contact with the kind of the head poncho at the Pentagon in terms of Hollywood liaisons, uh, Phil Strub, who was in the job for about 30 years, retired four years ago, I think now. He was there from about 1988 to 2018. Matt had been in touch with him, uh, trying to get information out of him, and he was sort of trying to, you know, fobbing Matt off and saying, oh, no, we don't have any of the old files anymore, and if you file a freedom of information request, all you're likely to get is... Uh, what was the phrase, uh, a brief entry in an incomplete database. And me and Matt had been working together for a while at this point and had, I filed a whole bunch of information requests and we got a whole bunch of documents based on the kind of discussions. And we said, oh, maybe we can get this, maybe we should try and get that. And then we were talking about this email and I thought, well, if this database does exist, uh, even if it's incomplete, it might be useful. There might be stuff in there that we don't know about. There might be, you know, things we can work off there. Um, So, yeah, I requested it. Initially, the army said they'd never heard of this. They said they didn't have any such database. The other branches of the military, like the Marine Corps for a while, said there was actually a second database, but then backtracked on that. Um, They said they had their own kind of version of this, but then said, no, actually, it didn't exist. And eventually, the Pentagon themselves, like the top of the tree, uh, got back to me and sent me a copy of this. And it's essentially an Excel spreadsheet, from what I can tell. But of course, they didn't send me an electronic copy. They printed the thing out <laughs> and posted it to me to make it as hard as possible to extract that information. <laughs> um, and it's kind of a fascinating glimpse into this whole world because it covers 
what's it, about 900 entries, I think, that are in this database. I mean, it's missing just as many again on top of that, if not more. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in there we did not know about, a whole bunch of films. There is some stuff on script input and other influence on, you know, visual content and such like. And certainly there are a lot of films in there that were denied, that were turned down, that approached the Pentagon or one of the branches of the military for some kind of support and had been rejected. And there's dozens of them that were never made, partly as a result of that rejection, because, of course, it makes it much harder to make some kind of military film if you can't get access to locations and people and vehicles and so on. And that was probably the most astonishing thing that actually came out of of that database document is that, you know, there were dozens of films that we'd never heard of because, of course, they were never made as a result of the Pentagon refusing to help make them. I've always thought Hollywood was doing fiction. So why can't they recreate like a set for, I don't know, an army base? Or why can't they fo- use After Effects for the uh, weapons? <laughs> like, why is it that they need all this? Well, a lot of those films were in the 80s and 90s before you could really do a lot with CGI. Mm-hmm. Another thing is you can recreate a lot of these things. You can find another building that looks a bit like CIA headquarters and put a graphic up saying, you know, CIA headquarters. But anyone who knows what they're looking at will know it's not the right building, in which case your attempt at creating authenticity backfires and you actually look a bit of a prat. And for all the people who don't know the difference, it's like, well, what difference does it make anyway, I guess? But it's more the things that you can't get elsewhere Sure, you can get an old, maybe disused army base and paint it up, and if it's only for a couple of scenes, you might get away with it. But if your film is set on an army base, you need an actual army base, otherwise it simply ain't going to look right. And especially for anyone in the military or any veterans out there watching it who are quite big on this, they love watching these films and pointing out all the problems and flaws and inaccuracies. And there are films and TV shows that have done this and try to do something that appears authentic militarily but without the military support. And they've been pilloried for it, especially in these days with social media. It's full of veterans saying, you know, this TV shows a a load of rubbish. This isn't what it's like. So that's a problem. There's also things like an aircraft carrier. There's only so many aircraft carriers out there. Sure, you can do it in CGI. You can do it with a bit of like, yeah, okay, you can put a couple of actors in a cockpit and try and CGI a takeoff in the background and stuff like that. But it doesn't look as good as the real thing. It just doesn't. I know, I watched countless hours of these films and TV shows and trust me, it just doesn't look as good. So you can do it, but you will end up with an inferior product. I remember you guys talk about a movie in 1994 that's supposed to be a very good theme, but it never gets made. And you go into detail about how it was rejected. I think you might be referring to countermeasures. Yes, countermeasures. There were, I mean, as Tom said, one of the things that's come out of the database is an enormous list of... Uh, of films that have just never been produced. Um, and that's largely because they didn't receive the uh, the requisite help. Countermeasures was a, uh, a very prominent example. And there were some other uh, prominent examples like Fields of Fire. I'll talk about countermeasures in just a second. But just to add to what Tom said about the uh, denied scripts as well, I think one of the other things that Tom found through the Freedom of Information Act um, re- request was that uh, Tom, I think I'm right in saying it was the uh, the Navy says that they've got 240,000 pages of documentation, um, yes. which has still not been released, um, which looks, to, which we believe, um, we suspect is rejected scripts. I mean, 240,000 pages sounds like a heck of a lot. I imagine that that is probably um, actual scripts, which probably accounts for for quite such a huge number of pages. But regardless, we're still probably talking about several thousand more products that have just been essentially destroyed at the behest of the um, for a branch of the uh, US military. Um, in terms of countermeasures, um, the yeah, that was a film that uh, had attached uh, Sigourney Weaver and Gina Davis at one mm. point as well. So, you know, big name stars. Um, and that was due to be set on an aircraft carrier. So it related to um, the Iran-Contra scandal from the 80s, which was to do with um, American drug running and things like that. It was um, Ultimately, it was covered in a kind of watered-down way in that Tom Cruise film, um, which I'm trying to remember the name of now, but from a couple of years ago. Um, American Made, you're thinking. American Made. Um, and, uh, but Iran-Contra was very controversial. It sort of got to the heart of the American establishment. It almost toppled President Reagan. Um, And so the Pentagon specifically said, we have no reason to denigrate the White House 
uh, with this script or to remind the public of the Iran-Contra scandal. Um, we have that in writing and, you know, it's, a, it's one of those, one of many very clear indications uh, of the extent to which uh, these organisations are heavily politicised, just very political entities that, uh, that will do whatever they can to prevent uh, narratives coming out that uh, oppose their interests. Um, countermeasures, you know, would have been a, a scandal set on a set on a military boat, um, and it probably would would have been a big budget blockbusting uh, movie production, uh, and we'd all know what it was, and we'd all probably be quoting lines from it for years to come. But of course, you know that that was not to be. Instead, we had things like you know the Jack Ryan franchise that sort of covered oh god covered Ir- Iran Contra in a way. Um, with films like Clear and Present Danger, which were Department of Defense-supported uh, movies. And again, you know, uh, what a surprise they are. You know, they're the ones that perhaps we remember. They're the ones, if you turn on the TV late at night, you might still see reruns of those. Um, and uh, they are just watered-down products that are uh, in favor of, uh, at least broadly in favor of, the um, American national security state and promote this idea of sort of, you know, kind of this sort of bogus democracy narrative. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I kind of want to ask you about. So let's say that I have a really awesome movie script and I give it to the department. Um, they come back with these script notes. What are they? And what happens to me if I re- refuse to incorporate these quote unquote notes in my movie script? Um, maybe Tom should answer that one partly just because my cat is purring as loudly Aww. as possible and as close, <laughs> as close into the microphone as Aww. he can possibly manage. <laughs> well, okay, Matt's cat obviously wants to answer that question, but I'll give it a go <laughs> instead. Um, yeah, I mean, like you say, they're script notes, exactly like those that would be sent by a producer or a, even a script doctor. Sometimes they hire a script doctor in Hollywood to go through the script and make recommendations on how to improve it. And it's essentially the same kind of thing. It's just lists, you know, page 17, scene 23, change this bit of dialogue. Page 43, we don't like this character's framing here. Can you make them more likable or more <laughs> noble in some way? It's literally stuff like that, um, but all from a kind of state propaganda point of view. So instead of it being about selling the movie to the audience, it's about selling the military to the audience. So they're not all that concerned with the, you know, whether a secondary character who's not in the military is noble or romantic or sympathetic, but they care a hell of a lot about whether the military characters are, and especially whether veterans are. They're, they're quite big on that. They're, you know, they're not, it's not just about depictions of active duty members, it's about anyone to do with the military, anyone who's ever been in the military. So, like one of the things we came, that came out of our research is that they're very, very sensitive about any depictions of mental health issues. So gambling, Uh, Drug abuse, alcoholism, homelessness, depression, suicidality, PTSD, all of these things, whether we're talking about people who are still in the military or people who are veterans, they hate these depictions. They censor them, they try and manipulate them, they try and twist it around to make it look like the Department of Defense and the military branches are actually, you know, dealing with this problem and helping these people when, frankly, they're doing a piss poor job of that. They're letting them down every single day. That's one of the reasons why so many current and former military members suffer from these things. So that's one kind of aspect that they're, they're, like I say, very sensitive about. And the script notes that they've sent back to dozens of productions are littered with this kind of thing. They don't want any mention of this if they can get away with it. So, for example, in A Few Good Men, the Mm -hmm. whistleblower character who blows the whistle on the big scandal that's taking place on the military base in Cuba ends up killing himself. One of the military's notes on that movie asked them to rewrite his suicide note to give it a more positive spin. What? That's how insane these people are. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I can show you the document if you want. I, I, I would love to put the document up, but I believe you. Um, well, uh, the one that surprised me a lot was Independence Day. It's a sci-fi movie. It's about an alien invasion, and they were upset about aliens like blowing through the pentagon or something yeah yeah in the original independence day script that was submitted to the pentagon for their review the pentagon itself gets blown up in the sequence where the white house and the Capitol, and i think it's andrew's air force base gets taken out as air force one is taking off you remember um in that uh, both the pentagon and actually if i remember correctly cia headquarters also gets it in that script 
And this was one of the problems the Pentagon had. So they sent a note and they had the discussions with Roland Emmerich and everything. And even though they ultimately decided to go another way with the film and they didn't actually make use of Pentagon support, they still took out that scene. So even on films that the, the CIA or FBI or DOD or whoever it is aren't actually providing help on, they can still have influence on the script sometimes. And that's a, another astonishing thing that I don't think either me or Matt really predicted. We thought maybe there's the occasional case of this happening, but we found it happening on like some of the biggest movies you've ever seen. Um, I think that was another thing that took us aback a bit, is just how much influence they can have, even when they're not offering anything in return, which is akin to the kind of Soviet-style or communist-style censorship. They're not even helping these films. They're just telling them what is and isn't going in there. Oh, oh well, yeah, at least their stereotype of it. It's kind of funny, like, whenever uh, people always like say, this is like North Korea, and I'm like, uh, no, this is like the U.S. <laughs> um, well, sure, sure. But, I mean, if you look at things like... Um, the Czechoslovakian communist governments. So there are some documents on that, on just how kind of petty and neurotic they were over film content. Um, and yeah, reading through some of these script notes, it's kind of, it strikes me just how similar the mentality is and just how, like I say, petty these people are. Yeah. Can you talk quickly about this professor named Lawrence Sood? And th I think this is mainly aimed at Matt because you had to go across continents to get some data. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, I went across the Atlantic Ocean, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know if that's crossing continents. And I, I was I was allowed to use a plane at the time. I didn't have to run. <laughs> but I'm glad that you made it seem like such a quest. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so me and Tom did main book in 2017. But actually, after that, um, you know, but we had a, quite a good response to the book and it kind of led to, to, to more things. It led, whether directly or indirectly, to the production of the documentary Theatres of War, uh, which is coming out in the next few weeks. In 2018, I went over to the United States to visit this archive in Washington, D.C., uh, which was Lawrence Seward's archive, which is where all the Department of Defense's documentation was stored. Was it done on purpose, like, to avoid FOIAs or something like that? Like yes, um, but basically, yeah. I mean, the Pentagon seems to find it extremely convenient, or certainly did find it con extremely convenient for many decades, uh, going back to the 70s, to have a collection of material in the hands of a private individual, a historian called Lawrence Seward. And Seward was very close, uh, personally and professionally, um, and we've got tapes of him talking through changes to his book to how to well how to make that more accurate or more mm -hmm. uh, in line with what the the military thinks is accurate um and it was it, it, he was essentially for 40 years um a military historian who uh, presented the acceptable view of what the department of defense was doing in hollywood and so he came out with a series of very uh, bland books um, all the way up to 2005 that were really just um, they were whitewashes really of what the of, of what the military was doing and so yeah I got into his archive in 2018 um, but even when I was there the library was very vague on how the collection was even made uh, Seward uh, himself it was not possible to get into certain parts still of the archive and it wasn't until Lawrence Seward died the following year that our executive producer, uh, Roger Stahl, was able to make a more thorough examination of the archive as things opened up a bit more. Um, so I was able to find a few things there. Um, you know, we found out that a couple of TV series that we, uh, you know, had had Department of Defense uh, support, for example, and um, an episode of Home Improvement had had, <laughs> um, had, 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 had support. Yeah, and then... The big shows? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> I know. And various other things like that. I think my trip was, you know, interesting and worthwhile, but it was partly interesting and worthwhile because they were still trying to hide so much material. Um, but then it was a year or two later that Roger was able to get more. And, uh, you know, and, and the, the, the flood of material that we'd had coming in by post um, in 2015-16 to make our book was still coming in as well. And I guess that's one of the things I'd emphasise as well is that if anyone has heard us talk on radio or on podcast before, we have been sort of 
promoting this uh, this work for uh, for several years but the the new documentary is quite different in the sense that you know Roger Stahl took this material and essentially alongside making a documentary film he also conducted a massive research project on his own well not on his own but with our support but he spearheaded a new research project and so it, it, the new material that he's found has been huge as well it's um you know it's it's mind-blowing really that the the level of control that the government is exerting over uh, over our entertainment it's just it makes you want to turn off the television entirely yeah which is a good thing um yeah can i just jump in <laughs> on the whole larry sewage story yeah um, yeah one of the things that also came out of these library visits by both Matt and Roger is that it's clear that this archive was somewhat bifurcated into two sections, one of which mm. Matt was able to access and one of which Roger was eventually able to access. But also that Lawrence Seward was seemingly moving files between these two archives. Yeah. It seems that he was essentially in charge of both of them. And there are still some files, such as uh, the file on... Uh, Saving Private Ryan, which we still have not been able to locate and not been able to get any copy of, even though the database it says itself says that file is in one of those two archives in Georgetown. It wasn't in the archive Matt saw, and it wasn't in the archive that Roger saw. So where the hell is it? Since then, the DOD has evidently got wind of the fact that Matt and Roger have been digging into this archive, and we've been sticking these documents up on my website and using them for other things, and they are now basically reclaiming the whole thing. They're taking the whole thing back in-house and saying, oh, we're reprocessing it before sending it to the National Archives. Now, I wonder what that reprocessing is going to entail. A lot of delays for a start. Yeah. And presumably a few bits of paper going missing or being lost in a random flood mm. or, you know, that kind of mm. thing. Yeah, they, 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 they did tell me initially, and whether they meant this literally or not, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, because it, it was very hard to get straight information, even out of the... The, the library itself, but they said that Lawrence Seward picked up the material essentially from a skip. What's a skip? You know, out, out in the middle of a road, you have um, uh, people dump all of their things in, like a massive waste bin. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like a trap, like a trash compactor. <laughs> so it, he, they were essentially telling me that the Department of Defense had just thrown out hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of pieces of paper and that Lawrence Seward then conveniently found them, picked them up and took them home and then put them in a library. Likely. The whole story is just all not very convincing. Um, and Lawrence <laughs> Seward probably was, um, I don't think anyone's saying necessarily at least that Lawrence Seward was, you know, in the employ of the military, but he certainly had a very close, you know, he was essentially what could be called... Very friendly. Very friendly, essentially what could be called a court historian. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and also the other thing, important thing was that, you know, for those four decades that Seward was in charge of, um, of all that material... He didn't share anything. He, he refused to share anything. Um, I mean, we kept on making up fake email accounts <laughs> to, to email him to say, oh, hi, uh, my name's Janine. I'm a 23-year-old PhD student. Can you, would you like to give me access to your, you know, and we tried all sorts of different ways um, to, um, to persuade him to share any of his material, and he didn't. Um, the closest that he came to sharing some material, it seems, was in the early 2000s when a journalist called David Robb used some of that. And then it led to the most vicious exchange in a journal that you've ever seen between these two men essentially accusing each other of, uh, of, uh, of libel um, over, this, uh, 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 over their interpretations of, uh, of, of this material. But David Robb wasn't able to sustain his, um, his access to any of that. Okay, so the one thing that really shocked me is that inside one of these documents from the DOD, they call a, a certain movie like a two-hour infomercial. Ah, uh, yeah, Lone Survivor. Oh, yeah. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. Oh, okay, no, no, but to me, that seems like that's how they see this as purely a propaganda, make-us-look-good project, right? Absolutely, they do. I mean, that that line, part of the reason why we included it in um, Theatres of War, is because it's possibly the most astonishing line that we came across in, in these. That, that was from these like diary-like reports of what these different entertainment liaison officers are actually up to month to month, which again, were an eye-opener on the sheer scale of this operation as much as anything. But yeah, yeah, it's littered with comments like that. 
And they very much see it in those terms. I mean, they never actually use the term propaganda. That's one of the funny things is that in these tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of pages of stuff that we've obtained in, in some fashion and through some method or other, I don't think we've ever actually seen the word propaganda or certainly not in any of the stuff from the last like 30, 40 years. Maybe if we went back to World War II, we could find that term in some of these papers. But I guess they live in a state of bad faith about what they're doing. And whenever you see interviews with these people or hear them on podcasts or things, they they do firstly openly lie about what they're up to. Mm. For example, the, the current yeah. head at the DOD, Glenn Roberts, in the only interview I've actually heard from him, which was on a podcast by I think uh, military.com, he said, oh, no, no, we never pitch. We don't actively pitch ideas to studios. And then later in the same bloody interview, he admits, oh, yeah, yeah, we really want movies about Space Force. It's something we keep bringing up in our conversations. <laughs> yeah, they're very proactive. And that, that's one of the things they really don't want to get. They really don't want people to know. Is because obviously there is a, a line between, you know, support um, and uh, an active propaganda. Um, and the fact that they are so active is one of the things that's really come out, I think, from uh, particularly from the uh, Freedom of Information Act request by Tom, uh, but also uh, from Roger. Um, and, also, and, uh, and Tom's right about the direct lying. It's um, the, you know, the, like, and Roger speaks to them in the, in the documentary. Um, he speaks to some of those people and, you know, their answers are just so kind of pathetic and weaselly that because they know that they've got nothing to back up with it. And, and I'd say, I know that we've used the, the word sort of surprising. And I think you, you were really surprised by, um, by the content of, uh, of what we've found. Um, and I, even in the title of our book, we use the word shocking. In a way, it, I mean, it is shocking, the scale. But in a way, these people are just operating like any other PR agency, from what I can tell. I mean, this is the same playbook as being used by the smoking lobby. It's the same playbook that's been used by the oil lobby. It's the same thing that's happening with the prime minister of our, of our country, the, <laughs> of, of Britain at the moment. He's, you know, he's just doing this. He's just continually doing the same thing of um, delaying an answer, delaying a report saying this will happen at this point. And so uh, however much political problems he gets into, he just has a, a stock way of, of, of responding. He'll apologise about this, but he won't resign. And then he'll put it, he'll just keep kicking the issue further down the, further down the track. It's, it's the same, it, it, I don't think it's particularly unusual. It's, it's standard practice for, for anyone who's running a PR agency. Um, and, and PR is everything. With the CIA and with the Department of Defence, with um, number 10 Downing Street in, in Britain, wherever you are with the White House, it's all PR. You'd be hard-pressed to find a, an actual, something that hasn't been spun. Um, so, you know, this is just an extension of that. It's just a surprising extension of it because no one even knew that it happened at all um, until the last few years. To prevent the further embrace of the CIA and DOD ironically sponsoring your favorite anti-imperialist podcasts and newsletters, we kindly invite you to support your comrades at Historically by going to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. That's historically.substack.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Twitch with Late Nights with Lenin. Get commentary and trolling from 100 years ago by the absolute master of the form, and see how little has changed. It is what is to be done. So, Tom, I heard you've been labeled as a vexatious requester. <laughs> Among other things. <laughs> what are the other things you've been labeled as? <laughs> uh, the, the Foreign Office called me a repeat offender. Ah. Um, which is actually kind of defamatory. <laughs> to be honest. But, you know, um, yeah, I mean, the whole vexatious requester thing is a term that uh, is actually applied mostly by the British government well, and, and some others to anyone who they consider is basically using the Freedom of Information Act too much. Ah. There is someone who is being sort of too proactive and aggressive in their attempts to actually, you know, get information out of these so-called democratic governments. <laughs> and the very fact that, e that these sorts of limitations even exist should tell you a lot about the limitations, both of the Freedom of Information Act in different countries and of so-called elective democracy. I mean, yeah, it's a name I wear with pride. I don't care. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so I hope, I, I have to see you. They can't stop me by calling me a vexatious requester. So what difference does it make? <laughs> True. Right back and tell them that they hurt your feelings, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So <laughs> now one movie you guys also take care to mention is about Jarhead, where it has this like abusive head who like hits the soldiers and like drives them crazy. And it talks a lot about these real issues. But then the Pentagon had a PR program against the movie after it got released, right? Essentially, yeah. I mean, Jarhead is about the Gulf War in the in 91. And it was written by a veteran of that war. The screenplay was written by another veteran of that war. So you would have thought this would meet the Pentagon's requirements for authenticity and realism in military depiction and all of the other excuses they use for what is actually, as Matt says, an extensive PR operation, i.e. something full of lies. It has nothing to do with authenticity and realism. That's just a cover story for another cover story. Now, they did approach the Pentagon. They did ask them, particularly the Marine Corps, because the characters in the film are essentially a Marine Corps unit. Um, they did not like the film. They went through the script. Uh, they sent them back a list of problems with it. They weren't even script notes. They weren't even asking for changes. So they just said all of these different elements are so... Uh, impossible for us to work on that basically we're not going to even enter into negotiations on this one. We're just giving you a flat out rejection. And among that list of problems was this abusive drill instructor who beats up the, um, I can't remember the actor's name, uh, who beats up the central character quite a lot, quite prominently in the film. Now, this is a curious one because back when Oliver Stone was first making Born on the Fourth of July, mm-hmm. They approached the Pentagon, asked them for support. One of the issues ha- they had is that, again, during a training sequence, there is an abusive drill instructor who is beating people up. He's punching them in the stomach, that kind of thing. They said, no, 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 you can't do this. Curiously enough, several years later, when they made the film, they actually skipped out the whole section where the character goes through training. They just go straight from him being recruited to landing in Vietnam in the midst of the battle, as it were. They never actually used that sequence at all, which is... Well, people can draw their own conclusions from that. Similar thing with Full Metal Jacket. I don't think they ever actually approached the Department of Defense, but I know the Department of Defense is not happy with the depiction of the drill instructor, despite the fact virtually every Marine who's ever seen that film says, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I like. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, those two are both Vietnam era, right? And they're saying, oh, no, no, it doesn't happen anymore. Back then, the drill instructors might have been allowed to slap mm-hmm. you or punch you in or something, but, oh, no, no, we don't do it now. Well, okay, but they're now saying that about the Gulf War. So what? How, when did this actually stop? Because mm. I'm fairly sure it probably still goes on in some places, is what I'm getting at here. But yet, over decades, they were saying, oh, no, no, that's the thing from the past. That's not something we do anymore. And they kept either knocking back films or objecting to films or trying to rewrite films in order to remove this thing that obviously still goes on. So. That's a, a great illustration of just, just a little thing that you wouldn't necessarily think of when watching the movie that they're very sensitive about and that has affected several major movies that you've probably seen. Well, okay, For me, what bothered me the most was, I can't remember which movie it was in, it was where they're, they, they find um, five random people in Afghanistan and they... That's Lone Survivor, that's the infomercial. Oh, okay. That's Lone Survivor. Okay. And, um, ha, okay. Now, now I understand. Okay. So, but then like they decide to like not shoot them and let them go. But I've done a quite a bit of research about Afghanistan and the U.S. Marines have actually shot Afghani civilians for sport. Not kidding. I can send you the article in the trial. But so that, that just like bothered me a little bit about how much war crimes gets whitewashed. <laughs> Well, I mean, in Lone Survivor, even in the actual events, they didn't kill these people. They, according to the only person who survived out mm-hmm. of those four Navy SEALs, which is obviously a difficult source, and I have to be honest, Marcus Luttrell is not a reliable guy. I don't know whether that guy is suffering from PTSD, survivor guilt, whether he has actually made up half of this story. I don't know what's going on, but that guy has contradicted himself so many times that yeah, you just can't take him at face value, or at least what he says at face value. Anyway, according to the version in his book, they explicitly discussed committing a war crime, murdering these goat herders that they stumbled across on some hillside in Afghanistan, basically burying them, covering the whole thing up, and if anyone ever finds out, they just lie about it. That's something that does happen. That's something that has happened in every American war, 
and probably every other war, to be honest. I mean, it is something that happens in warfare, but obviously because America is the most warfaring country, <laughs> they do it more often, I guess, than anyone else, maybe. And yeah, they were very unhappy about this depiction. And they certainly didn't like the idea that they were just sort of openly discussing this and that they had a vote on it, that they just sort of rejected any notion of military chain of command or the law or anything like that. And they just said, look, we're just four guys on a hillside and we can either kill these people or we let them go, in which case they're going to probably run down the hillside and let the locals know that we're up here. Yeah. So that scene gets rewritten. And the version in the book is drastically different to the version in the film. In the film, there's no real discussion of war crimes. They just sort of briefly say, well, we could kill them. There's no discussion of like a conspiracy of silence, no discussion of a prolonged cover-up, no question of the law or ethics, all of which are, you know, to some extent debated in this lengthy sequence as explained in the book. And so where does the whole authenticity thing come in? Is this not just the Pentagon saying, we don't like that this happened. We don't like this conversation. So you need to just completely rewrite this conversation to make us look better and to make our dead Navy SEALs not look like potential war criminals. And I can understand from their perspective why they did that, but it's a massive deviation from the accepted version of events. So well, I mean, kind of Tom, disres- Tom, if you kind remember- of disrespecting Luttrell and saying, well, we reckon Luttrell is kind of full of shit here. So screw that guy even though he's the only guy who survived from this massacre of Navy SEALs. So whichever way you cut it up, that's a pretty awful thing to do, I reckon. Mm. The, the uh, CIA's uh, entertainment liaison in the 90s, you know, he, he put it pretty straightforwardly, he just said, we're tired of being seen as the bad guys. Have you tried not being the bad guys? <laughs> and uh, and I think that that's probably you know just the underlying issue that these um, that these national security organisations have with with any of it. They you know they want to they want to look good, and I think that's been particularly an issue um, since the end of the Cold War because it's been harder to justify the existence of mm-hmm. um, of huge and inflated budgets for the national security state. It's probably been even more so the case um, since the war on terror. But also perhaps it goes back to the 1970s as well, when there was the uh, year of intelligence in 1975. And the idea that the um, the US military and the CIA in particular were actually very dangerous organizations that were harmful to American democracy gained such currency. And I think it's really from those origins that these organizations have made the decision to put such a heavy emphasis on their PR game. It wasn't really the case, um, uh, certainly with the CIA, but even relatively speaking with the Department of Defense in the um, 50s, 60s and, uh, and early 70s, that concern wasn't as, uh, wasn't as prevalent. Um, they weren't trying to manipulate narratives with such a degree of frequency. They were still trying to stay out of the news and they were still trying to manage news as best they could. But, it really, but th- this whole process got a real shot in the arm as populations um, as the American public and the West, as Western populations, wised up and realised that their masters, their, the institutions that, that are running us, don't necessarily have our best interests at heart. Um, and I think that's particularly the case with organisations like the CIA and, um, and the American military, for goodness sake. I mean, they're the mo- some of the most controversial organisations in, uh, in the world. Um, as, is the, you know, as is the FBI, or at least certainly has been in the past, the FBI. So I think that that's where this is coming from. And I think one other thing I'd just emphasize as well, uh, Esher, uh, um, is just that, you know, this isn't all about internal um, American uh, military uh, issues like, um, like the prevalence of mental health issues in the American military. And it's not just all about trying to make personnel look good. It's also about controlling much larger narratives as well. Um, so, for example, even um, the narrative about, say, take the biggest thing that I can think of, which is about nuclear weapons. I mean, the way that the, uh, the Department of Defense has handled um, the representation of nuclear weapons is really interesting. So, for example, they, um, there's a reference to um, the Hiroshima bombings in the new Godzilla film, um, and they make sure that they tone down that, well, basically remove that speech and replace it with a much vaguer speech about, you know, man, what was it, Tom, something about mankind, you know. It's d- un- arrogance un- before nature, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's yeah. just like a crap version of what Ian Mountain says in Jurassic Park. Yeah, yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And then they've also, you know, they tried to remove very specific policy issues from, uh, for example, from a very famous uh, TV, uh, made-for-TV movie called The Day After, which was about a nuclear war. They tried to remove a reference to the actual American um, nuclear weapons policy, which at the time, until the late 1990s, was launch on warning. In other words, if um, if we're attacked by nuclear weapons, if we think we've been attacked, we will we will respond immediately, which is much more risky. I think America still also has a nuclear first strike policy. We still, yeah, the, I think the West still has a, a, a first strike policy, but launch on warning was even worse, um, and that continued until I think 97. But yeah, we did. Yeah. I mean, it's like nuclear weapons policy is still appalling and not just appalling. It's, there's not even a word to describe it, really. It's uh, um, it's kind of omnicide in, in action, isn't it? And omnicide in slow motion. But they also had similar effects on films like War Games and um, that Christian Slater movie and John Travolta Broken Arrow because it was about the, dis- the you know about the theft of a, of a missa. We have at least six Broken Arrows like in the middle of nowhere. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and similarly on Crimson Tide um, because that was about a mutiny on a nuclear submarine. I think there was references to it in Tomorrow Never Dies and also in Terminator and, and, and plenty of other films. So, you know, and also, you know, they want to demonize other countries as well. You know, that's part of this agenda. It's Soviet's fault. It's, it, it's, it's not, um, it, 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 this PR activity covers the whole gamut of activity in the real world. It, it, they deal with everything and they try and smooth out everything. Um, for for their own benefit or for their what they think is their benefit, their short term benefit, um, even if it might lead to the death of their people on their own side and indeed the, um, whole countries. Okay, so I have two questions. Um, so in the original, I guess, envisioning of Godzilla, Godzilla was a monster created out of radiation or something like that as a warning to humanity, and. Towards the more recent renditions, they're using nukes to get rid of Godzilla. Like, how did that transformation happen? Well, because of the DOD. Okay, that's an easy answer. Okay. At, at its simplest. Okay. The second one is in the 1950s, there was a movie called The Day the Earth Stood Still. It was a warning about nuclear weapons. But then um, they redid it with Keanu Reeves. But then they, instead of nuclear weapons, they changed it to environmental damage. Like. Was the DOD involved in that at all, or you guys know? I'm pretty sure they were. What the remake? Yeah, the more recent one. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, because yeah, it it didn't because it, it didn't make sense when they were like, oh, environmental. Like it, it, it was a much vaguer cause. And why would the alien come and warn? Like nuclear weapons made perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is uh, again. This goes to what Matt was just saying: is that you got to appreciate. The Department of Defense isn't just a, well, isn't what it's called, it isn't a Department of Defense, for one thing, but, but also they're involved in all sorts of things. And whether it's a genuine humanitarian operation or one that's being used as a guise for military occupation, which is perhaps more common, whether it's some kind of disaster relief in the wake of earthquake, famine, flood, whatever, all of these different things that you see the DOD doing in these films have in some way been airbrushed and rewritten and reshaped by the very people who want you to see these people as heroes. It's, I mean, for one thing, it's astonishingly vain and narcissistic, just from a psychological point of view. But also, this is in particular where they've moved to since that period in the mid-70s that Matt was talking about, is that that's when a shift started to happen. Up until that point, the Department of Defense almost exclusively worked on war films. Now, they're working on Godzilla movies. They're working on Iron Man. And bake shows. <laughs> they're working on, yeah, they're working on an astonishing number of cookery shows. <laughs> um, a disturbing number of cookery shows, I have to. I mean, the, the sheer existence of how many cookery shows is slightly disturbing in itself. But the fact that so many of them are being turned into military propaganda, well, that just makes it... <laughs> is Gordon Ramsay military propaganda? Uh, at times, yes. Okay, darn. Top Chef. Top Chef has filmed at CIA headquarters. <laughs> you name it, really. Um, that's the thing. Once you get into this, it's bizarre and surreal, this world you find yourself in, where you're thinking, how on earth is Cape Boss being used by like the State Department and the FBI for <laughs> what agenda? And then you watch the episode and you're trying to decode this and understand what on earth were they thinking? Um, so 
yeah, that, like I say, that's when this shift happens towards not, we're not just making war films anymore. We're making everything. We're trying to portray ourselves as dealing with and the solution and answer to everything, whether it's an <clears throat> asteroid, whether it's a giant monster, whether it's a pandemic, doesn't matter. Whether it's rogue North Koreans, whether it's the Chinese, whoever they're referring to <laughs> there, since that's like, you know, one and a half billion people, um, you know, they're the answer. They're the response. They're the only solution and they're a necessary solution. And fundamentally, that's the message that they just keep hammering at us, whether we're watching, you know, Lone Survivor or Food Truck Face Off. <laughs> it really is. The whole gamut of entertainment is being used to portray the, the Pentagon as the answer to the whole gamut of human and earthly problems. I have a question in regards to, uh, so like for a while, the CIA was like, the CIA does, the United States does not torture. And then eventually you're, it was like, we interviewed um, John Kirkyu who blew the whistle on that. And we realized, uh, yes, of course you guys torture. So then it seems like in uh, the movie where they allegedly caught Osama bin Laden, they kind of try to make torture seem necessary. But we know that actually the information that caught Osama bin Laden, it was from one of the Kurdish groups. And they just like casually asked this person over like a few cups of coffee. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I mean, that goes back to prior to the Abbottabad raid in, what was it, May 2011, the CIA had an internal PR program set up months beforehand where they were, because they were getting hammered over the torture program, they said, we're going to use this raid, we're going to use the successful capture or killing of Osama bin Laden as our way of essentially remediating the torture program's reputation. We're going to make it seem like, oh, it's okay. It was not only necessary, but it was a good thing because it led us to bin Laden. The problem is that isn't true. If you read the Senate Intelligence Committee's torture report, which um, one of the few people in the world I reckon has actually read it cover to cover, um, <laughs> they detail how, for example, the guy that led them to the house in Abbottabad, Abu Ahmed Al-Kuwaiti, the bin Laden's career guy, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you're familiar with in this story, they were up on his phones and emails in late 2001. Hmm. Why did they not follow him? When bin Laden disappeared at the end of 2001, early 2002, why did they take 10 years? Hmm, interesting. And he goes into hiding, right, supposedly yeah. at that point. What would a man in hiding need? A courier. They knew this guy was a courier for bin Laden, that he'd been friends and a personal assistant to bin Laden for years. They were up on his phone, his email. They knew who he was. They were tracking this guy. And yet, mysteriously, they stopped tracking him and then restarted tracking him eight years later, supposedly as a result of information they gleaned through torture, but that isn't actually true. Uh, so... The whole story in Zero Dark Thirty of how they ended up in that house in Abbottabad is basically nonsense. But it's nonsense based on White House talking points that were written by the CIA. And then, even after they based the script on those talking points, they then had CIA covert operations officers, not just public affairs people, not just PR people, covert ops people, review the entire script and rewrite it to their choosing. That whole film is a lie written by the CIA. <laughs> oh my god okay i mean i i couldn't watch it because i was just bo I, it, it was not because it was neither good or but i was just i found I, I saw the first few minutes and i was just bored um <laughs> it is not an interesting film yeah um and we have to talk about i've always wanted oh the jack ryan series and how iran and hezbollah <laughs> are <laughs> collaborating with venezuela to do whatever <sighs> okay so it's the most popular series on Amazon, and I've never seen such blatant propaganda like so out in the open before. Um, I have. Oh, you have. Okay, <laughs> tell us about that. <laughs> I, I guess Matt and I have been watching this stuff for a lot of years, so maybe. I mean, I don't know. That second season of Jack Ryan did, I think, raise both of our eyebrows. It's like, right now they're going down the route of. At least in terms of the way they presented it in the commercial for season two, it was, oh, the Russians are giving nuclear weapons to Venezuela. <laughs> Wait, what? what? And it was also, they were also suggesting that the nuclear weapons would definitely be used to destroy Washington, D.C., at least, again, as you say, in the trailer. I think they back away from it a bit in the actual, in the actual show itself. But yeah, I, I struggled to watch uh, Jack Ryan as well. It gets to a point after you've uh, done this kind of study for whatever it is, 10 or 20 years, <laughs> you start to 
you know, watch things out of obligation to try and find um, political messages. And it sometimes drives you a little bit insane. So I, I think, uh, Tom, can you can you feel this one on Jack Ryan? I've only seen parts of it. OK, I mean, season one is fairly, I mean, it's, it's relatively well written, but it's fairly run of the mill, homeland style, war on terror, Islamic terror stuff. Season two went crazy because it has Jack running off to Venezuela, supposedly to track down these Russian nukes that don't exist. And he then stumbles across, purely by accident, uh, an evil dictator in Venezuela, who is for some reason a kind of right-wing authoritarian. Uh, and he is facing off in the election against a liberal female... Juan Guaido. <laughs> ...something kind of human rights campaigner type who isn't very interested in politics. Juana Guaido. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that his name? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you essentially have this fascinating inversion of reality, whereby the CIA, it turns out, are actually helping liberal left-wing candidates mm -hmm. in Latin America, people who care about human rights. Mm -hmm. So this isn't at all like the overthrow of Allende and the replacement with General Pinochet, which is, of course, a essentially socialist prime minister, president, uh, prime minister, I think, being overthrown by a crackpot right-wing military dictator who tortured and murdered tens of thousands of people, maybe more. That's what actually happens when the CIA gets involved in Latin America, is stuff like that. But according to Jack Ryan, it's the inverse. Instead, what you end up with is liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. I can't actually remember in the long history, and I've read a lot about the CIA's history in Latin America, of any of their machinations and operations resulting in a liberal democracy. Never. In fact, the problem is democracy. They've said it open. I can send you the WikiLeaks file where they complained about how Evo Morales is having people draft the Constitution without paying attention to democratic limitations. Oh, I'd love to see that. Actually, please do send that. I sure I'd appreciate that. Okay, to Tom or Matt or both? Both. Okay, I'll send both. it to you both. Yeah. yeah, so in fact, their problem half the time is the opposite. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to ask a philosophical question. And if you guys are not familiar, uh, just we'll, we'll delete it. But have you uh, heard about Bud? Baudrillard, I'm pronouncing his name right wrong. I know. Oh, is this Jean Baudrillard, the uh, French philosopher? Yes, hyper reality and the Gulf. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Cool. Okay, so do you think we're at a phase where the DOD is creating their own hyper reality? I think we've possibly been in that phase for a while now. Oh. Yeah. And I think yeah. they've certainly. I think what, perhaps more fundamentally, what I think, and maybe Matt will disagree with this, but I think they've weaponized the condition of hyper-reality. I think they've cottoned on to the fact that people don't know the difference between what they're looking at on a screen and what they're looking at in reality, or at least that confusion is very prevalent and very common in a lot of areas of life, and they've weaponized that process. They've sort of seen that and thought, we can exploit this. This is bonanza for us. We can just fill people's screens with endless imagery of our choosing that has been curated and airbrushed to our liking and people will think that's what's actually going on in the world and it's astonishingly effective yeah i wouldn't disagree with a word of that uh, wow well, yeah i mean like the movies like avengers and uh, tony another one you guys mentioned where he becomes a weapons dealer which is 100 percent different than the comic books Iron Man, yeah, they totally inverted that. Um, Tom, uh, Tom, and uh, Trisha Jenkins have a uh, have a book out. What about three or four weeks ago, Tom? Um, which is called uh, Su "Superheroes um, and the uh, Superheroes and the State." Uh, I, I missed out a word there, but superheroes Su in the state, superheroes and movies and the state. movies of the yeah. state, and uh, and that in that book you outline over many pages, which I had not seen before. Um, over about eight about eight pages, you outline how the narrative of Iron Man and the character of Iron Man was completely inverted from an anti-war narrative into a pro-war narrative. I mean, I always kind of had a sense of that, but you really document it particularly thoroughly um, and, and with reference to, to government documentation. Well, not just that. I also plumbed through draft scripts. And there's actually a fascinating, like, unofficial director's commentary. They never did a director's commentary for the film on the DVD, but they did one at a kind of live screening of the movie several months after it came out, where it's just uh, John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. sat there watching the film with an audience doing a commentary. And you can find the recording of this online. And so I plumbed through that. 
And there are some truly astonishing things in that. Possibly the best example is when Tony has been captured and he's in this sort of militant cave complex up in the mountains and the terrorist leader is showing off this, you know, large array of weaponry that he has. Um, he has, you know, all these sort of fancy different you know, missiles and guns, anti-aircraft stuff, all this different kind of thing. And Tony asks him where he got it from. And it, they actually filmed this scene, uh, scripted and filmed this scene. The guy responds, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush. And it's a reference mm. to how, as Favreau puts it, weapons have just been pouring into that area from lots of different angles, but particularly from American administrations for decades. And therefore getting hold of these things just isn't difficult anymore. And he says that that met with disapproval from some higher ups, but then Robert Downey Jr. cuts him off and starts talking about his watch before we find out who <laughs> exactly those higher ups were. But I think yeah. Yeah. it's either someone from the Pentagon or someone from the studio or both. Mm. Wow. And for me, with like the one where they have, is it the Avengers where they do the Air Force propaganda with the women? I wondered like, why don't actors, these actors have a lot of power. Like people pay 20 million for some of the top guns, I guess. <laughs> um, they could just actually say no to these movies uh, as a group. They're in a union. Like, why don't they? I think it's because it's too new. The information just was not available in any coherent form um, and was extremely poorly, uh, it was scattered everywhere until we did that book in 2017. Um, I mean, Tricia did a book in 2016 about the CIA's role, but you know, this is all very new. I mean, it feels a little bit old to, to Tom and I because we've been writing about it and researching it for a long time. But in terms of public consciousness, uh, you know, it's it's just it's just not been known um, until the last until the last few years. That's largely a result of the extreme effectiveness of the uh, of the different national security organisations, or, or essentially just their little PR offices, um, being able to control all of that with um, with the collusion of uh, a tiny number of court historians. So I think that's the reason. I mean, you might find in 10 years time, you might have some kind of celebrity who, you know, latches onto this. But, but at this point, it's, it's just too early, I think. And I think it's also in some ways too broad. Uh, there are some people like, I mean, obviously, Michael Bay knows exactly what the deal is and he's completely happy with it. Oh, he's the, is he the one who says I have a direct line to the Pentagon? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, um, yeah. He's also the one who, when he was trying to get permission to film at Langley, was basically telling the CIA, I can get the Pentagon to vouch for me, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the letter, you can find it on my website. Um, but people like that are totally on board with the deal. I think a lot of the others, they only brush up against it. And all they're getting, as actors especially, is a script. They don't know it's been rewritten. Mm. They just, they're just getting a script and, oh, oh, this scene's changed. Well, scenes change all the time in pre-production, so that's just a normal thing for an actor. They don't realise what it is they're getting into a lot of the time. They don't well, realise what it is that they're fronting. They also have the benefit of meeting all these lovely military people who are no doubt very delightful on set. And, you know, they get some training for combat training, you know, to make themselves look more authentic and, you know, all that kind of thing. So no one really, this is the, <laughs> the main problem is that no one loses by these arrangements except for the audience. And the audience doesn't know. So, you know, I think that's why you've not really had any prominent actors coming out against this particular process. I mean, you do sometimes get prominent actors who are opposed to, you know, um, pro-war narratives in general. You've got your Susan Sarandons and your Tim uh, Robbins and, mm -hmm. um, you know, th those kind of, uh, that, you know, that small sort of group of people, Sean Penn. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, often they're kind of co-opted in one way or another as well. I'm, I'm trying to think now, I'm sure that there's a, a Tim Robbins film that is... Uh, uh, DOD supported, or at least I think there was one where he was playing a veteran and it was kind of very kind of heavily pro-veteran and, you know, not really anti-war. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Similar yeah. thing. Similar thing. Sean Penn helped the CIA get El Chapo. Oh, oh yeah. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> so there you go. So someone like Samuel L. Someone like Samuel L. Jackson, um, you know, he did uh, Home of the Brave, for example, which was, um, you know, the, the Pentagon saw that as a, a really unwelcome uh, movie because he was being an alcoholic after serving in Iraq. 
Um, but actually, you know, from our perspective, it, you know, it's kind of a, it's a little bit just sort of uh, putting all the emphasis on the on the victimhood of the invaders, really. Yeah. So, it, so in a way, you know, there's so many, there's kind of layers and standards to this that, you know, what the Pentagon are request are requiring of, of the films. Even if you got rid of the Pentagon, you'd probably still have quite a few films that are pretty distasteful um, to to the outside world. I mean, it would be a massive improvement, but nevertheless, you know, it, this isn't just a government problem. It's also a cultural mm-hmm. problem. Absolutely. I have like a quick story that's kind of funny because um, what happened is that last year, Serbia made, a, it's a very well done movie called um, Dara of Yasinovich. And a lot of these like film reviewers were saying it's unrealistic, but it was actually the most realistic description of what happened during World War II in Serbia with these really crazy Nazis. And I I remember I saw the, like, I kind of got to see it. And I just remember how, like, I I don't know if these reviews were meant to came from the national security state or just these reviewers, like, couldn't Google or whatever. But it seems like when people do make very realistic movies, sometimes they get, and JFK is another example where they had ran a big PR campaign against it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I think this goes to two points. One, don't take film reviewers seriously because most of them are idiots. They like watch three. They watch three movies a day and write a review, and that's what they get paid for, and that's that. Their opinions aren't really worth that much usually. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that massive cultural problem that Matt just mentioned is that you can make a film that flatters people's preconceptions, and even if the film itself is massively wildly inaccurate, firstly, they're a film reviewer; they don't know any better. They're not a historian. And secondly, because it's flattering their preconceptions, they'll give it a positive review. One of the best examples of this, actually, is The Courier, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, which came out in 2020, I think. CIA supported movie. And it's all about the uh, Oleg Penkovsky case in the 1960s and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it basically portrays the CIA and MI6 as heroically stopping the Cuban Missile Crisis. (laughs) by recruiting Oleg Penkovsky and getting the Penkovsky papers and all of that kind of business. The problem is 90% of the actual story they tell in the movie isn't true, and that overarching narrative isn't true. The Cuban Missile Crisis would not have happened if it wasn't for the CIA meddling in Cuba in the first place. Bay of Pigs started it. Yet that whole side of things is completely excised from the narrative, and instead the movie starts with a Soviet premiere giving it all that, talking about nuclear weapons and using the famous phrase, we will bury them. That mm. never happened. He used that phrase in an, <laughs> in an embassy where he said to a bunch of Western diplomats, history will prove us right, we will bury you. He wasn't talking about warfare or nuclear weapons or any of that. He was talking about his vision for the success of the you know, Soviet socialist system or whatever. They've completely just ripped that out of context and recontextualize the entire Cuban Missile Crisis to make it look like Soviet aggression that was saved, we were saved from oblivion by MI6 and the CIA. It's complete fabrication, that movie, and yet it was supported by the CIA and is being praised by reviewers for being, oh, what what an important historical narrative to be telling right now. Mm. Isn't it so brave of them to embrace this history and, and, and put it on the screen for us and all of this kind of crap? Makes me sick sometimes, but this is the cultural problem that Matt's talking about. It's such, it's so firmly embedded these sorts of values and this sort of bad faith that, yeah, even if we got rid of the CIA and the DOD and Homeland Security and the rest of them from Hollywood, Hollywood would still be a show. What it's okay. So in that case, is there something to be done? What is to be done besides, I guess, some educating people, like so they're aware that they're watching a two-hour infomercial? Stop watching Transformers. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. What I told That's the short answer. What should we watch instead? Um, the Boys. Oh, Succession. I love The Boys. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, for me, what I loved about... Uh, uh, has season two come out yet? Season two, yeah. Season three is out soon, actually. I think. Oh, no, no. Season, season three, sorry. Oh, yeah, well, season three is out soon. It, it and Okay. What I mean, I like Homelander is accurate. Like he's what America is. <laughs> Homelander's wonderful, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Homelander kind of is the is the DOD entertainment liaison office. Oh, manifested we, as a superhero. And then they have this like defense contractor who's. Uh, I, I liked all of it. Um, 
it was perfect because the that uh, he like the, they abandoned like these children on the middle of a plane and let them crash to death or whatever and yeah well, the military does do things. Like oh, that. no, no, it, it does worse. So I was very happy with the way um, the voice happened. Like, how, you know, how I, was it Homelander who goes to either Iraq or Afghanistan and just like opens his like scary eyes and kills everyone there? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of the point is if you want a cultural shift to happen, all culture is, is a bunch of people doing some stuff. They're engaging with stuff. They're getting interested in stuff. They're telling their friends and whoever about it. Well, so discourage people from going and blabbering on about latest Transformers movie, which is exactly the same as the last 17 Transformers movies, (laughs) and say, you know what, I think there's better stuff out there. If you want to watch something, okay, you want to watch something that's kind of action-centred, watch The Boys. If you want to watch something that's more dialogue and character-centred, watch Succession. Or, you know, go and have a look around. Be more open to the fact that there are a hell of a lot, there's a hell of a lot of movies and TV out there and we get spoon-fed this national security schlock left, right, and centre. And I think the true antidote to that is to simply disengage with as much of it as possible, or if you are going to engage with it, engage with it critically, and just vote with your feet, vote with your attention, vote with your eyeballs, vote with your wallets, whatever you want to call it, and just engage in other things. Because that creates demand, that creates a groundswell of cultural change. And that's the only thing that ever really makes a difference is when people do something and make a difference. Honestly, as much as I'd love to shut down the entertainment liaison offices, <laughs> the problem is deeper than that, and it requires a bigger solution than that. Okay. Um. And w- for the final question, like, what are you guys working on next, or are you continuing more of the same, or is there another genre that you want? I guess uh, look for NatSec involvement. Um. I mean, I'm working. I, I'm very much continuing working on this. I mean, I run a website where I put out podcasts and articles and videos where I talk about this stuff all the time, but I have recently also started a job running an investigative journalism unit. So in terms of big picture stuff in the future of entertainment liaison office research, I'm just not in that headspace right now, I'm afraid. No, and similarly, I'm just, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I really want to promote this new documentary, Theatres of War. When does it come out? Um, well, I've had it listed as um, the 14th of February because it's Valentine's Day and it's a love letter to the Pentagon. Ah, okay. Um, and uh, <laughs> will, will it come out on theatres or how do people watch it? I don't think it's going to be theatres. It's, it's out. Tom, can you remember the name of the platform that it's out on? Um, it's, it's going to be out on several online platforms. Uh, I think for students and academics, I think it's it can be for free. I think that there's a pay for option for um, people who aren't who, who don't have those logins. Um, but I don't think it's super expensive or anything. And I can't remember any further details. <laughs> OK, oh, how about this? Uh, Basically. Uh, Go ahead. Follow my website, spycult.com, yes. or follow Matt's Facebook, The Writer with No Hands. And yes, as as good plug. Remember these details. We'll post more up there. And then you <laughs> yeah. can get DVD, streaming, whatever the options are, you can take your pick. Excellent. Um, well, thank you so much for coming. And like I said, this movie left me very uneasy, like properly uneasy in a way I should be proper uneasy. <laughs> you should be. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we're pleased <laughs> thanks for having us on yeah yep and please come on again and have a great rest of the day thanks you too bye 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 music for this show is done by Rectech. you can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H and thank you for listening to our show